0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, September twentieth, twenty twenty-one. Today is the second podcast in our three podcast miniseries on placenta accreta. I am joined again today by Dr. Brett Einerson, who is a maternal-fetal medicine specialist at the University of Utah. Last week, Brett and I discussed what exactly is a placenta accreta, who is at risk for it, and how we diagnose it. Today. Brett and I will talk about how we manage placenta accreta during pregnancy and at the time of delivery. Next week, I'll be joined by Professor Ilan Timor to talk about cesarean scar pregnancy, which is a precursor to placenta accreta. We have a lot of interesting stuff on the schedule in the next few months. Later this week, we're gonna have a high-risk birth story. And then in a few weeks, we start a six-part miniseries. Yes, six parts on twins. So if you want to get a graduate degree on twin pregnancies, gear up for that. Again, that starts in two weeks. Hey, if you're new to the Healthful Woman podcast, welcome aboard. Happy to have you. Feel free to check out some prior episodes of this podcast and to check out our other podcast, High Risk Birth Stories, which drops every Thursday. If you have any suggestions for any topics, please do email them. We take requests. Finally, if you happen to be listening on Apple, We'd love if you can rate our podcast, ideally with five stars, and please do leave a review. I read all of them and really appreciate them. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. See you Thursday for High Risk Birth Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Today, you're going to hear part two of my discussion with Brett Einerson on placenta accreta, management and delivery. In part one, Brett and I discussed what exactly is placenta accreta, who is at risk for one, and how we diagnose placenta accreta, or at least highly suspected in someone. Part two of the podcast, which is what you are about to hear, starts with me asking Brett about what he does when he suspects someone does have a placenta accreta. How does he manage that pregnancy? So that's what's coming up next. Thanks a lot. So let's say someone is either uh, there's a high suspicion for a placenta accreta or enough suspicion just based on her history, you know, having the preview, having multiple cesareans, regardless of ultrasound. What do we do during pregnancy? To counsel them to manage the pregnancy, to plan for delivery. What's sort of your, I don't want to say protocol, but sort of like how you typically would start, let's say, with this pregnancy?
1: Yeah. So if we're, if we're pretty sure of the diagnosis, then we start making plans for the, the surgical day, the delivery day right away. For patients, what that means is we modify a little bit sort of their approach to activity not i know i know I, bed rest is a bad word in, in in your in your world and it is in mine too oh except um, for me so I, 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 could use,
0: I could use a lot more of it but for my patients i agree <laughs> <laughs> um
1: so bed rest is not part of the treatment but pelvic rest meaning no intercourse is part of our recommendation and you know it's not really based on any actual research other than just a worry that with the placenta being low as it is for most patients with accreta and sitting right on top of the cervix it's possible that intercourse could cause bleeding and if if it causes bleeding it's not just run-of-the-mill spotting it could be a lot heavier than that so i recommend pelvic rest for patients who have placenta accreta i see them at least every month and do an ultrasound about every month to follow the location of placenta not not necessarily to keep hemming and hawing about whether or not accreta is there, but to really figure out where on the uterus the placenta is located, because that helps me to determine if they've got it and what the surgical approach is going to be like. We oftentimes, once we get up towards the closer to the date of surgery, I will have patients, like I mentioned before, move closer to the hospital. So I tell patients that I feel best if they're within 30 minutes of the hospital, 45 at the most. So if they're living far away, around 30 to 32 weeks is when they move to Salt Lake City or nearby. If they're going to have a planned preterm delivery, which almost all of them are, then we'll consider steroids to help the baby's organs mature to get it ready for the outside world. We want to make sure that their that they're iron stores and their red blood cell counts are as close to normal as is possible because we want them to have sort of a full tank of blood in case they do have heavy bleeding. And so we'll do testing for iron levels and hemoglobin and give them additional iron if needed. And then we aim for that 34, 35, sometimes up to 36 week mark, depending on how things are going. What I tell people is, you know, you have any concerns, you've got to call in. And I, I kind of treat these patients a little bit more, I don't want to say preciously, but a little bit more <laughs> intentionally than other patients. I give them a specific number to call so they don't just go through the hospital
0: line. If they've got questions, they get
1: a, a direct line to one of the accreDA experts.
0: That's a real interesting idea. I like that. It's different in New York City, obviously, for a whole host of reasons. We don't have a lot of people living three, four hours away. Most of our patients are within that zone or close enough, you know, within an hour or something like that. Yeah. But one of the things I always talk to patients about is even if you live close, you always need a jump plan, right? Meaning, you know, if they had a prior C-section, they usually have children, right? So if you have a, a kid and you're deciding that we're going to go to the zoo today, me and my three year old. Great. What are you going to do if you start bleeding? Like, what's your yes. plan? Right. And all, and it doesn't mean you can't go to the zoo, but say, all right, I know that, you know, my my partner's at work and, you know, he or she can meet me at the hospital or my mother in law's here and it's on the way there. I could t- take my kid, drop off. And, you know, you just need to have that because you can't start thinking about what do I do with my three year old while you're bleeding heavy. It's not a good time to figure that out. And so I talk to you about that all the time. Like, don't be the only person at home at two in the morning with a two-year-old, because what if you bleed right. at night? Who's coming to take care of your two-year-old while you go to the hospital? Have that worked out in advance. And I usually tell everyone with the placenta previa the same thing, because they have risk of hemorrhage as well, I and mean, they don't have to have an accreta to hit need a jump plan. But it's one of these things that people don't often think about. They think about packing their bag to make sure that you know they have the right charger for their iPhone when they go to the hospital. But this is more like a higher level, get there safe.
1: Totally true. I. That's a, that's a great point. And just as an example to illustrate how critical that is, I, I had a patient who moved down from Idaho and was living just 15 minutes from the hospital. And when she called me, I was on call that night. And when she called me, she had just started bleeding. And by the time she got to the emergency room and and I met her there about 15 minutes later, she was totally covered in blood. And again, I'm not, I hope I'm not giving your uh, listeners PTSD with, (laughs) with gory horror stories. But I'm just reinforcing the point that it can't be a, oh, yeah, we'll start driving from an hour and a half away once we start bleeding. That's not an option. And we're not, you know, if you're going to go out ice fishing on the reservoir, I can't be out there alone
0: with no contingency
1: plan to get back to the hospital ASAP if you start
0: bleeding. Right. We haven't had a lot of ice fishing concerns in my part of town, <laughs> although I, I guess we could ask about that. You know, how much ice fishing do people do on the Central Park Reservoir uh, in the winter? But that's cool. You know, one of the other things that we do uh, frequently is we'll check, you know, because if those patients, again, are, let's say, you know, an hour away, hour 15. And it's it's hard to, you know, get space in Manhattan to, let's say, you know, just move in for a month or something. Totally. We'll sometimes do, you know, cervical lengths. And if it's nice and long, you know, their chance of laboring is lower. And, we'll, you know, we'll use that potentially to gauge who should come, you know, move in sooner, who shouldn't. And like you said, their history uh, is an important part of it. And then who do you have them meet with or who do you meet with? Like, how do you assemble your team for the day? Because there, there's a team that needs to be assembled. You don't just show up like, hey, it's me and my patients. Let's operate. You have like a whole you know, group of people,
1: yeah, what I tell patients from the very beginning on our first consultation is that there is nothing special about me as the, as the doctor that's taking care of them, other than I have a really effective way of coordinating a humongous team of super smart people to keep you alive. The people that they meet in our system beforehand is a couple of people, one and critically is an OB anesthesiologist. So this is an anesthesiologist with specialized training to take care of women who've got really bad obstetric problems, including placenta previa. So I will arrange for a preoperative consultation with them so that they can talk about what the experience is gonna be like from an anesthetic standpoint. For us, it's not the same as a normal C-section. We do try to keep patients awake for the C-section part so that they can see and hear their baby. But then they go to sleep for the hysterectomy portion if we're going to do a hysterectomy. And so meeting with an anesthesiologist to go over their health problems and to talk through sort of the, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, is really helpful for patients. I also It's also have helpful for the
0: anesthesiologist. They, they love knowing these patients in advance rather than just showing up and meeting them. It's Because it's, they have questions they may want to ask that we don't know, we don't remember, you know, they're going to look in their airway, you know, they're going to like the things that they want to know before an hour before the surgery. So I, in our experience, the anesthesiologists appreciate it just as much as the patients do. It's not a burden on them. They want to meet you before the surgery for sure.
1: Some of these cases will be some of them will be the most difficult cases. Those anesthesiologists will take care of all year. And so absolutely they they appreciate getting to know these patients beforehand. The other team that I have them meet with is actually our group of counselors and social workers, so this is a problem. If you haven't already um, gotten PTSD from listening, you would definitely be at risk if you have this problem. This is a really harrowing and, and, and scary situation to be in, and thankfully, almost all the time we end up on the on the other end with a healthy healthy mom and a healthy baby. But That doesn't mean that this is no big deal. This is a life-threatening, scary thing for patients and families to go through. So I have them meet with our clinical social worker and our mental health team so that they have a relationship with them beforehand so that when things get difficult afterwards, if they get difficult, then they've already been hooked into that system. If there are specific needs, like if I really think that it's going to be a complicated bladder case, like the bladders mm-hmm. involved, then I will have them meet a, a bladder doctor, a urologist beforehand. And if there's any other specific concerns about their surgical history or medical history, then I'll have them meet with specialists for those organ systems as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's very similar on our end. And, you know, we have them meet with, you know, whoever, certainly the anesthesiologist and others. And we always explain to the patients, like, this is a team. Like, like you said, there is, it's not one person you need, the nurses have to be on board with what's going on. The the surgical tech, the blood bank, right? You know, we talk to the blood bank in advance. You know, all of these things have to be coordinated. And it, it's absolutely true, first of all, just common sense, but also it's been shown in multiple studies that two people with the same diagnosis of placenta accreta, one of whom is in an environment where things are planned, prepped, prepared, ready to go, Versus someone who's just sort of like winging it, it's night and day what the differences yep. are. I mean, it's it's literally the difference between life and death potentially. It's crazy.
1: That's right. We try to get as many doctors and providers thinking about these patients as possible in advance of their surgery, so that if something happens urgently and they come in the middle of the night, it's not people thinking about their specific case for the first time. And the way that we do that at Utah is to have an interdisciplinary conference every month to talk about all of the upcoming and all of the past, recently passed cases. What this does is helps make sure that I, as the person who saw them for the consult, am on the same page with the anesthesiologist, with the other surgeons who are going to help me out, sometimes with a radiologist who may be doing procedures on them, with a trauma surgeon in case they go to the ICU, and with you know a laundry list of other team members who also want to be involved in the care of these patients, and so it's a big conference of four or five different specialties and 15 to 20 people that get together every month and and really mentally prepare for when this patient's case happens, whether it happens on the day of their intended delivery or in the weeks preceding it, because they need have a, a reason to deliver early. For us, it's been. A great way to all get on the same page. Some places do it, like you know, with a with a common email or with a you know a, a phone call between a couple of the people who are going to be taking care of those. But there, it's it's hard to understate how important that inter, interdisciplinary communication is. And like you said before, every study that's ever looked at it has shown that interdisciplinary care that's coordinated across specialties is superior in terms of safety. Then, just you know the doc the, the OB sees the patient or the m f m sees the patient and, and and just sort of takes care of them by themselves
0: it's not the same thing as let's say you know building a house right so if, if if i'm a general contractor and i'm building a house from scratch for somebody okay so i'm I'm coordinating I got my person who does the framing and I got my person who does the plumbing and my electrician and my roofer and my painter they don't need to speak to each other. I can just tell the, you know, the framer, here's the plans, frame these 12 rooms and then tell the plumber, here's what we're doing. Here's where the toilet's going to be. Here's where the sink's going to be. You know, put the pipes in. And honestly, if the plumber and the framer never speak to each other, never meet each other, it probably doesn't matter. I mean, maybe it's nice if they know each other in case there's like something that comes up, but it doesn't make a big difference. But for this, it's not like that, right? Because there are so many decisions that have to be made that are dependent one on another and they're intertwined. And you can't just have the anesthesiologist working in you know, her, or his silo and the blood bank in their area. And like you said, the trauma surgeon, they're like, everyone needs to know and discuss and say What are we doing? Are we, you know, what kind of incision are we making? What do we expect the time of surgery? Are we planning the hysterectomy? Are we going to do a wait and see approach? Are we putting in balloons? Are we not? And like all these things. And when are we admitting? Are we giving steroids? You know, all this stuff. And then there's also the social component, you know. Who's their support system? Who's their family? You know, what's going to happen? And everyone needs to be on the same page or it just doesn't work well. And that is critical. And that's also part of the reason why places that do this more frequently are used to this and the people know each other already and they have a relationship and they've had cases together and they have experience together and they have that working sort of, like you said, muscle memory of doing these cases. And that's, you know, that's important.
1: Because this is my area that I'm most interested in. I have closer relationships with random people in in anesthesia and surgery and in radiology than I do with even some of my other OBGYNs in my department. Not because I don't like my OBGYNs in my department, but because I, I am critically dependent and my patients are critically dependent on me having a good relationship with multiple specialties. Right.
0: You need their cell phones. You need to like you need to be able to call yes. them and you know text them and know exactly and they they know who you are and they know that you know what you're doing and I mean we're saying it over and over because it's so critical it changes everything with the management here we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of like the surgical details because you know frankly it's not going to be relevant to our listeners exactly what happens but a are there people who have a placenta accreta for whom you will potentially not do a hysterectomy and b how do you make that decision with them like who who potentially could have an accreta and still walk out of the hospital with their uterus
1: it's a question that i think we still need more information about but in my current practice the people who probably have the best chance are those who have what we suspect to be accreta but is not a previa so that's an area of stuck placenta somewhere that's not low down because what can sometimes happen is that you get inside and you have somebody who has a scar from a prior myomectomy or which is a fibroid removal or dnc or maybe they've just had in vitro fertilization and then they have a area of placental adherence and what can oftentimes be done is just to have that part of the uterus sort of like taken out with the placenta and then sewn back over so there are this isn't super common, honestly, it's not something I recommend a ton, in part because most of the accretas that I see, most of the patients who I see with accretas don't don't fit that profile, most of them have previa. But for the 10% or so who don't, there is a chance that if they want to keep their uterus, they can by just sort of taking out that specific area of the
0: uterus. You mean like to you sort of like cut out the placenta and the muscle of the uterus take it all out together and then sew back the uterus that's remaining. Like like take out a it's called a wedge resection or sort of a colloquial yeah. term, take out a chunk of the uterus, so to speak, and just sew the rest back together.
1: That's right. Like if it's confined yeah. to a very small area on the middle of the upper part of the uterus, there's a chance that when the placenta comes up, doesn't come out, we can isolate that small area that's affected, mm-hmm. take out the over or underlying muscle with it, and sew the uterus back together. And that's probably for a lot of patients that is a lower risk procedure than having the whole uterus taken out. Okay. But for most patients who have a crita, specifically if it's a previa, that's not a good option because what placenta accreta does, honestly, is kind of destroys the lower part of the uterus. So even if you could sort of remove the placenta without totally removing the uterus, it would cause, first of all, a ton of bleeding. And second of all, there wouldn't be a lot of normal uterus to put back together. There are other parts of the world and other investigators who are looking at the possibility of leaving placentas in place.
0: Yeah, let's, let's talk about that because people, that, that's, that's big on the Google. The Google's big on yeah. this one. Yeah, this is a definitely a, a, a Google one. It's real. People do it. Real, you know, good doctors do it. But it's it is complicated. So, so explain what exactly happens in that situation.
1: Yeah. So, for the patients who opt for this treatment, we, it's generally called. Cool conservative management which is sort of a weird name for it but yeah, leaving I the plac- yeah, i don't know i don't think, I don't think
0: that's so conservative <laughs>
1: yeah. leaving the placenta in place and letting it slowly re- uh, absorb away right, right so you so you, so you you do a
0: cesarean right you make an incision yep. in the uterus you break the water bag baby comes out clamp the cord cut the cord baby goes to the pediatrician's the parents you know like a typical cesarean and then instead of trying to remove the placenta you do what Or instead of removing the uterus also, you do what?
1: You cut the cord very short, tie it off, and leave the placenta in place. And then watch for a little while and make sure that initially there's not a lot of bleeding. And then sew sew the uterus up, watch for a while to make sure that
0: there's no bleeding. Right. And then sew the the abdomen back up. Yeah. For the patient, it's essentially having a cesarean, right? It's just like a cesarean, uh, again, if it works, except when it's done, instead of the uterus being empty, there's a placenta left inside that is still stuck. And what is the thought that it's just going to sort of shrivel up and go away or that it's going to fall out later? Or what is the what is the the hope, I would say?
1: The hope is that it will shrink inside the body and not detach like a placenta is sort of designed to do. So one of the problems with it is if it's if it's only partially attached, the rest of the placenta will actually usually try to detach. Right, and so that could be a problem because part of the then part of the placenta is trying to deliver, while the part that is stuck won't let it. Some of my colleagues in other countries who are commonly performing this procedure will say is actually the most severe cases, the most stuck on placentas might be the best candidates for having conservative management or leaving the placenta in place because it can't really detach; the whole thing's stuck on. But the idea is that slowly over the course of months, yes, I did say months, the placenta will slowly go away. And in some parts of the world, this has been described as a reasonable treatment that has decent outcomes, meaning you don't have a lot of blood loss at the time of C-section because it's just a C-section and not a complicated surgery. And then for about 75 to 80% of patients who keep their placenta inside of, eventually the placenta just sort of goes away or can be safely
0: removed months later when it's much, much smaller. Right. And what about the other
1: 25%? And the other 25% have immediate complications. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. don't get me wrong. The current treatment is a difficult and risky procedure. You know, cesarean yeah. hysterectomy or during a hysterectomy at the time of their delivery is also a complicated surgery. But the major risks of leaving the placenta inside include an overwhelming infection from the placenta that's not really supposed to be in the body, then getting infected, or commonly, sort of partial detachment of the placenta and tons of bleeding as a result. And so, in patients who we perform this for, we give them like the strictest instructions on how to return. We send them home with a letter that explains exactly what's going on in their body so that if they ever have any symptoms of infection or bleeding and they encounter any healthcare provider that they know exactly who to call which is us and they know <laughs> that that's an emer- immediate emergency it's not a normal retained products conception it's not normal postpartum bleeding it's an emergency if this patient starts to bleed it's an emergency if this person has it uh, has signs of an infection the other idea is that you don't lose your uterus immediately We're about 15 to 20 percent the patients, they ultimately will lose their uterus during conservative treatment. But the risks that come along with that benefit are considerable and unfortunately are pretty unpredictable to have patients who most patients will have a reason to, to sort of stop conservative treatment within the first couple of hours or first couple of days, which is why we keep them in the hospital for longer. Mm-hmm. But some patients will go weeks with no complications and all of a sudden have an infection or a bleeding complication that can be very, very life-threatening and,
0: and scary. Do you offer this to patients? I have offered it to patients who
1: come in seeking this as as the treatment that they have already gotten consultations on before and, and, and select. And for patients who have very, very severe disease. So this these are patients where you look at the ultrasound and everybody is nervous. We talk about this as being a possible treatment that's not standard of care in the United States that is an option that they could that they could consider along with us. But it's not something that I consider to be the first line treatment yet, and, and I'm not sure that it's ever going to be. If somebody comes right down to it and says, what, what do you think is the, is the best treatment? Almost, you know, the vast majority of patients who have Acreta, the best treatment for them, if they've got it, is to have a hysterectomy at the time of their.
0: What would you say in your center, what percentage of women end up attempting what we call the conservative approach uh, to leave the placenta inside. I'm just curious.
1: Like 5% or less. Yeah,
0: so it's really uncommon. I think that's an important lesson or message I would say for people listening that, you know, it's Googleable. It's out there. There are people doing this. And for some people, it's going to work and you're going to hear a story that it was, you know, it saved the uterus, so to speak. And that's absolutely true. But there's also a lot of, you know, disasters and it's just not the common approach in the U.S. It's not currently the way It's going to happen. So, most people are, most centers are not so comfortable doing this. And the ones that do it are always a little bit uneasy about it. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, you can hear
1: that uneasiness in my voice. We have provided it.
0: We have done it in patients who are insistent
1: upon an attempt at it, but we watch them like hawks and worry a lot more about them for sure. Yeah. And almost all of them have come from two or three or four or five other
0: places that were like, nope, we don't do that. Two more questions I want to ask you before we wrap up. First question is, Let's say someone thinks she might be at risk for this, right? Either she has a bunch of cesareans in the past, or she was told she has a previa, or just, you know, she's seeing doctors and they, they keep sort of looking at the placenta and they keep, they're not sure, they're this, and, you know, and she doesn't feel that confident. What could she do? What, what are the options for someone in that situation?
1: This is a really hard place for a patient to be in because it's almost impossible for a patient to know what the expertise and experience level of their physician is. And it's not common for patients to sort of have the wherewithal to say, you know, I'm worried that my doctor might not know exactly what's going on with this. So I think patients who are at risk, meaning they've had a previa or they have had multiple prior cesareans, should think about asking questions of the person who's doing their ultrasound, meaning that, you know, the the people who are reading the ultrasound or their OBGYN, simple questions like, I've heard this about this problem, and I've got some risk factors. Do you think I need to see a specialist? Or how co- how confident are you that I have or, or might have or don't have this? I think those are decent places to start. And, and patients, I think, feel sometimes like they can't ask those questions because it sounds like you're questioning your doctor. But in my experience, most doctors don't mind receiving questions like that. And if they didn't have it on their radar before, then they'll at least know that you're worried about it and you know about it too. And so I think that's a good place to start. That you sit, you just, you know, when you're having your ultrasound, you say, you know, I, I've heard that I've had, I have these risk factors. Do you think I've got placenta accreta? And that I think opens up uh, at least a line of communication where your doctor or your, your healthcare provider knows that you are aware of this and that they should be aware of it and that it's something that will, they'll need to keep a close eye on.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that, as you said, people are usually very hesitant. You know, because people are in general polite and sort of, you know, they they like to, you know, defer to the experts, so to speak. And people are, they don't want to question the doctor as much. You know, I know everyone thinks that patients come in and saying, you're wrong, I saw this on Google and you're wrong, my sister told me this. But most people are not like that. Most of them are like, you know, the doctor knows. I can't, you know, like, I'm not going to start questioning. One of the ways people can gauge is, you know, if you ask, a thoughtful question to your, whether it's a doctor, you know, whoever's taking care of you, let's, let's assume it's an OBGYN and you say like, Hey, I've had two cesareans. The placenta's kind of low. What are the chances I've been accreta? Like, what do you think? And mm-hmm. just listen to the answer. And if it sounds really thoughtful, like, you know, okay, here's why I think it is. Here's what I think it isn't. Here's what we have done in the past. Here's how we do this. Here's how we manage. Here's what happens in my hospital. And, and they, they really talk about it intelligently and honestly and openly you're probably in a good situation. Whereas if they yeah. blow you off or you can't understand what they're saying, or it's pretty clear, they don't know what you're talking about. It might be time for a second opinion. And the, the sim- I think the simplest place to go for a second opinion or an opinion, even if it's just the first opinion, I, I would say in the U S it's probably any maternal fetal medicine specialist, like any, right. We'll will yeah. know enough about this, even if they're not the person who does it, you know, cause not all MFMs do these complicated surgeries or run centers, but they know enough to know you know, how to triage these and say, this is good, this is bad, you need to do this, you need to do that. I, it's probably the simplest, I would guess, if someone's trying to figure out how they can see somebody in the U.S. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. About half of my referrals come from other MFMs. Not every MFM is going to take care of these cases surgically, but I think that most MFMs now in 2021 are going to be cognizant of both the risk factors and the general appearance and location of the placenta that should raise their red flags. And so MFM's a great place to start because most of us should be aware of this problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's part of our and not everybody.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, and not everybody who's getting prenatal care needs to have an MFM do their ultrasound, but if you've got the risk factors, it seems like a really reasonable thing to ask for.
0: Let's say your doctor or someone's doctor says i do suspect you have an accreta or i'm confident you have an acredita or whatever it is how would someone know that they're going to be in a place that's going to provide excellent care for them this is really hard obviously there's no good answer to this and yeah. u.s. healthcare is a you know it's got its issues and we're not going to go into all of that but just practical level someone someone's out there listening says my doctor thinks i have an acredita uh, am i in the right place should i be in utah like i mean how do they figure that out it's a really difficult thing for patients to know. It's it's even
1: more difficult to know sort of what your experience of your doctor is in terms of placenta accreta. But I think there are a couple of hints that I have for patients that may be helpful. So one, you have to know that you're not alone and that there are a huge number of women now online and elsewhere who've had this problem who can be helpful to you in knowing Where some of the busier and better places are to get care. So one resource that I trust that patients can access is the National Accreta Foundation. This is an online group of advocates and survivors of accreta who really have the collective experience to know where they've had great experiences and where they've found out is not uh, a great place to have your accreta surgery. And so I think while it's always a little bit Difficult to know how much you can trust online forums and Facebook groups and everything like that. I actually do trust the National Acrita Foundation to give solid advice on helping patients figure out where to go. There's a couple of questions that can actually be really helpful. If you're coming to your next doctor's appointment, you know you're at risk for this. They sort of think that you have it. I think there are some reasonable questions to ask that can p- point you down the right path. The, the first would be, do you think I need to be seen at a specialty center? Or do you typically refer patients to a specialty center for this problem? And sometimes doctors will say, no, I don't, you know, I usually take care of these patients and it goes all right. Or yeah, I, I've got to refer patients with this problem out. And then they, then you've got your answer. The other question that I ask if, you're, if your doc is, is talking to you about surgery, is just to ask them what their experience has been. Like how many cases have they taken care of in their, career or within the last couple of years. And I think there's no magic number for competence or safety, but I do think that it is generally true in a care, like in cancer care or any other highly specialized, somewhat uncommon problem, that the more you see a problem, the more a health system takes care of a problem, I should say, the more prepared they're going to be to take care of you in the worst case scenario. And I, I just want to hearken back a little bit to previous parts of our conversation by saying that the best centers with the best outcomes are places that take care of multiple people every year, that have pathways of multidisciplinary care set up, and that tend on the side of being over-prepared for cases. And so I think if you're, you're with your doctor and you're wondering whether or not they should be the person to take care of you, I think asking about the number of cases they've seen how they prepare for these surgeries, what specific approaches they're going to take. I think the overall conversation will lead you to either a place of confidence that they have done this a lot and they know what they're doing and they have a huge team set up or they don't. And if they don't, getting a second opinion at a busier place is in is is those places you can find on the National Accreta Foundation or, or online for the, the Accreta Centers of Excellence are great places to start for a second opinion.
0: That's really helpful. That's great advice. And it's an important message for people listening to know that this is it is more common now than it used to be because of more cesareans are being done, you know, than used to be. But it's still not that common. Most people have had prior cesareans are never gonna have this, you know, they're not gonna have that, you know, confluence of prior cesareans plus previa, equal accreta, and all this stuff. And so it's 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 something to be cognizant of, but it's not something that I think people need to sort of like sit up at night worrying about I've had two C-sections, if I get pregnant again, you know, is is it gonna be horrible? Because that's not typically the case. And number two, even for someone who has an accreta, in the situations where it is suspected or diagnosed or highly suspected, and you're in a good center, the overwhelming likelihood is you'll have a very detailed and potentially stressful pregnancy and intricate plan for delivery. And you will deliver and walk out of the hospital holding a healthy baby. And that's the most likely thing that's gonna happen if you're getting good care. And I just think that that's an important message that it's not something that we do to freak people out, but more so just to explain, this is complex. You gotta know you have it. You need people to know what they're doing. But if you are, and they are, you should be okay almost always, absolutely. yep, there's
1: a ton of uncertainty, and we can provide like very little absolute answers in this situation. But if you're at a place that sees patients like this all the time, you're in good hands.
0: Brett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for taking so much time out of your vacation to do that. it's it's I really appreciate it, but it's it's important to me. it's important to our listeners to hear about this critical condition. And important and sometimes confusing for patients, uh, this condition from someone who's an expert and someone who explains things well. You're certainly one of those people, and uh, I'm just really uh, thankful that you are uh, that you agreed to do this.
1: Thank you. I had a great time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's dot ncom If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.